Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Okay, welcome everybody. This week, my guest is Andrew or Andy, which do you prefer? Andy. Andy, okay. Uh, If I've got this right, Andy has just returned from an extended period in Japan Yep. where he was teaching English. So how long were you there for? Two years altogether. And where were you? Uh, Yokohama, so just south of Tokyo. Okay. Yeah, I know where Yokohama is because it's, it's industrial, isn't it? Uh, fairly, but it's actually the biggest city in Japan nowadays. Right, but does it, doesn't it sort of run into Tokyo? Yeah, they kind of do pretty much. Yeah, I had a... When I was working in Russia, in fact, in the oil business, um, Chioda is a huge player in the LNG business. They do a lot of the construction and engineering for LNG sites around the world. They did the one at Sakhalin. They've done the one at Yamal and the offices of Chioda in Yokohama. So I've got quite a few friends who lived out there um, for about about a year. Um, Be the same time you're out there, actually. And they are... They used to go out into Tokyo for nights out. They said there wasn't a lot to do in Yokohama. Uh, there's a fair bit. I mean, there's quite a few bits around the station, and there's an area called Nogue, which is a bar area, a bit like Shinjuku, with lots of small standing bars, which is quite good fun. Because I, I went out in Tokyo in 2009, I think it was, February 2009, and we found a place which is in Tokyo, with uh, loads and loads of tiny, tiny bars. I mean, they're micro bars, four seats, yeah. and the place is full. Yeah. Was um, that Shinjuku? No, it ended with gay. That's all I remember. Yeah, that's uh, Golden Guy. That's the enchanted. That's it? Yeah. That's it, Golden Guy, yeah. And we went from one bar to another. But they, they, were, they were so bizarre. They were tiny. Yeah. They were, there, were, <coughs> there were four of us. We, we did a lad's holiday from Sakhalin combined with a ski trip. So we spent two days on the piss in Tokyo before we went up to um, Hokkaido to do some skiing. And yeah, we ended up in that, that area and we were going to these tiny little bars. It was hilarious. You were sat at the bar and your back's against the wall yeah. and your front's against the bar. It was great fun. Yeah. There's a lot of them, though, which are uh, no foreigners allowed sort of things. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I don't think we blended in very well. So. Yeah. So is that right? Why do they want to keep foreigners out? Is it like uh, U.S. sailors or something causing trouble? Or I think it's mainly just the language issue. The the bar owners aren't comfortable dealing with foreigners, and they have a local clientele which they don't really want disturbing by foreign tourists or local expats or whatever. That's that's fair enough. I mean, we we didn't see any of that. We are. Uh, uh, to be honest, we we were smashed. We could have been thrown out of five of those bars and I wouldn't have remembered. Um, but the, the ones we went into where some of them made us very welcome. I mean, they were I mean, they, they didn't speak a lot of English, but we, we were just pointing at jars of potato soju and drinking that. And yeah, yeah it was it was it was a lot of fun, actually. Um, 
So how did you get the job out there? Did you just go through the normal route of applying to teach English overseas? Yeah, pretty much. I applied for a couple of different jobs in Japan and I applied for some in China as well and I think one in Singapore and it, this was the first one that offered me a job. And But all teaching English? Yes. So why did you decide to do that? Uh, well, the short story is that I wanted to uh, get out there as soon as I could and it was the wrong time of year for international schools. Right. So I went in January 2017 and most of the international schools, their school year starts in August. Yep. And I didn't, I didn't really want to wait till August, basically. But yeah, but why did you want to go abroad to teach English? Is that, is that what you studied at university? Is it? No, it's totally different, actually. So a uh, short story of my career is that I did a degree in biology and I worked in the pharmaceutical and healthcare sector for 10 years. Right. And then I wanted to change and it's something that I'd really always been interested in and I wanted to do something which I could do abroad. So I did teacher training in the UK and so I was teaching science in secondary schools here. Right. And then, and then that kind of, I did that for a bit and I, then I went to China for six months on a internship, which was supposed to be teaching English, but I ended up in an international school and I really liked it there. So I, I was, I was originally going to go back to that school in the following August, but that fell through. And that's why I ended up staying in the UK until Christmas. And I was looking for jobs to start as soon as I could. Okay, so what kind, what kind of people go to international schools in China? I, I imagine, imagine there's expats kids and diplomats kids, but do local children go as well? Yeah, there's two main types. There's the international international schools, like you mentioned, where it's the expats. And then there's ones which just, just do a international curriculum, but they're for Chinese students. And that's usually the, the more well-off parents than their kids there. And which were you in? I was in the latter kind. So that was, it was actually a brand new school that only opened that year. And it was, the idea was to prepare students for studying in America and Europe. So they had a more international type high school education. Yeah, no, that's understandable. No, I've obviously seen a lot of that around in, uh, yeah. I think in most most places abroad within, especially in Asia. I've got a mate who lives in Miri somewhere out in Malaysia and there's a, there's an international school set up there basically for the offspring of relatively, in a local sense, relatively wealthy oil and gas workers who want their kids to learn English and have a go to a university in the UK or America. Yeah. So they've done that. So, so where were you doing that in China? Beijing. Okay, how was it? It was good apart from the pollution. Is it that bad still? Yes. I mean, I was there three years ago and I was actually there for Christmas. And it was a white Christmas, but due to smog, not snow. Right. No, I've, I've heard that. I mean, I've never been to China. I've only, the closest I've been is Hong Kong. But oh. I had some friends a couple of years ago who had to go into the real hinterlands for some coals, coal seam gas project that my, our company was doing out there. And it was like a small provincial town of 8 million people, something yeah. like that. Um, and they said that the, the, even compared to Beijing, the air quality was horrific. Yeah. It was like it was like a industrial revolution yeah. <laughs> well, type you stuff. A, you used to get an app on your phone which would just track the air quality in real time and it would just beep saying, air quality decreasing, take action now. And that's when you just whipped out a mask or went indoors. 
Yeah, because you can't really do any running outside or cycling around or any sports, can you? Yeah, well, you can on the good days. And again, if you wear masks, they help a bit, but it is, it's not really recommended. I mean, they had the, uh, what they called the black days when it was the really, really bad ones and they would shut down all the schools and all the traffic would be shut down and the cars would be banned from the roads and so on. And how long were you out there for? In in China, it was to give us six months. So I, I went to do a teaching English internship. And the idea was that you'd, I chose to do this because I wanted just to try it out. And six months, I thought, was a good amount of time to see if I liked it. And I got placed in this international school where even though I was supposed to be teaching English, I ended up filling in teaching biology and then computing, which was fun. Right, and you didn't fancy staying there longer or going back to China afterwards? Well, they, they offered me a job for the next academic year. So my, my internship was from September to end of January. And they originally offered me a, a job to go back the following school year. And I was all set to do that. And then it kind of fell through around March, April time. The official story they gave me was that they'd, because the school was expanding, they wanted to hire two new teachers the next year. And right. they hired one but they didn't meet their student recruitment targets, so they couldn't afford to hire two now. Okay. Well, was there, was there some kind of recession or downturn there that caused that? I'm not, I don't think so. I think it's just that they didn't hire as many students as they wanted. Say hire. They didn't recruit yeah, yeah. as students as they wanted. And, um, but then saying that, my friend that still worked there said they did hire two teachers in the end, so I don't know what happened there. That was just some interpersonal sort of weird stuff going on there. I just remember now when I wrote something about teacher plans on my blog and you contributed quite a lot in the comments yeah. to that. Because, you, yeah, you've got quite a lot of experience teaching, yeah. whereas I've known some people just go abroad to teach. I don't think with any any experience, I don't think any even going to teach a training college. Well, there's two different levels. So there's the teaching English as a foreign language, which you can pretty much do as you say, with no real qualifications. Right. And again, like for the internship I did, you had to do a 100-hour online TEFL course, which, right. um, which uh, literally is kind of a bit of a joke. I mean, I joke that they could print the certificate on soft, you know, soft toilet paper. That would be more useful, really. Yeah. yeah. And so those sort of things are like the bare minimum, especially for some of the places in the Middle East and well, the Far East more. And then there's the actual international schools where they want you to be a UK trained teacher or equivalent and have at least two or three years experience before they'd be willing to hire you. Ah, uh, right. OK, that, oh, that's the difference then. OK, yeah. I didn't realise you were actually in the latter category. For some reason, I thought you were in the former because uh, last week I spoke to Ben Sixsmith. Yeah, I listened to that. All right. Yeah. So he's, he's obviously teaching English as a foreign language in Poland. Yes. Um, and I might be doing him a disservice here, but I don't think he had much teaching experience before he went out there. Yeah. Um, and I've heard of a lot of people going to Korea and Japan, certainly in the in the 90s, early thousands, a lot of people did that. They'd go out these places to teach English as a foreign language, having yeah no no teaching qualifications. Yeah. Um, in fact, a, a lad from my hometown did it. Um, this would have been in the early thousands he went to japan he ended up marrying a japanese girl that's very common um, yeah yeah i've, well, I've heard that yeah um so uh 
and and I don't know I don't know what happened afterwards whether he's still there whether he came back I mean do, do most people just do a short time like you do or do they does everybody does some stay out there forever uh, yeah you get all sorts so there's some people that were there for less time than me and then you get the ones that have been there for 10 years and got wives and kids and they're basically settled there for life now and that's easy to do in Japan is it you can I, I know it's almost impossible to get a citizenship but um it's okay it's easy enough to just get a residency and stay there it's yeah once you're married to a a japanese citizen you can get permanent residency without too much paperwork i think but knowing japan it probably would be a fair bit of forms to fill in and so on yeah um no it's interesting so i don't yeah, I only know the one guy who, who married a Japanese, and I don't know whether he... I'm pretty sure he never went back to Wales. Well, he might have gone back to Cardiff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know if he stayed out there or not. But um, I guess there's enormous cultural hurdles to overcome Yeah. in Japan. Um, I, I've, I used to be pretty good friends with a Turkish woman mm-hmm. who in the late 90s worked out in China. Actually, she went to university in China and she dated a Japanese guy for about two years out there. He'd been sent to China to do to the university and he was a few years older and he was very, very westernized and they got on very, very well. But he ended the relationship because he said he didn't want to bring her back to Japan he basically was told to come home by his company and his family. Right, you've done your time in China. Now come back to Japan where you'll be in quite a high profile position in this corporation. Yeah. And he ended the relationship on the grounds that he didn't think she would be suited to a married woman's life in Japan. Well, it is very traditional still there, especially for Japanese men and what they expect from a wife. Exactly. I think that's partly why the, there are a lot of Japanese women that marry Western men because they don't have those same expectations and they're a lot more modern in their outlooks. Yeah, uh, and and I think what was interesting as well, what this uh, guy said to her was that, and she was heartbroken at the time, but in, in hindsight she realised it was the right decision. He said, I'm a very different person back in Japan than I am here because yeah. in Japan I don't have to be particularly Japanese. Yeah, sorry, in China... I don't have to be particularly Japanese. I'm a lot more flexible in how I can behave. Back in Japan, well, I'm expected, even by my family, to behave in certain ways and certainly in the context of being married to somebody. Yes. You know, and um, so he had the foresight to... This is what what he told her. Maybe he was just fed up with her. Maybe he just thought bollocks to this. I'll go back to Japan and find her. Maybe he was already married. I don't know. But anyway, it, it it kind of made sense to me having spent time in Asia that, you know, there's this huge cultural divide. And if you're not used to it, um, because the guys I knew in Yokohama, they kind of got involved with Japanese girls, but mainly ended up with other expat women, sort of Filipinos, South Americans. Yeah. Yeah, so um so so what what kind of what kind of uh cultural adjustments did you have to make living in Japan for 2 years? Um well, the thing is again when you're working as an English teacher, you are kind of still in a slightly that like, expat bubble and that most of your co-workers are westerners 
And also when you're working, you're still speaking English the whole time. So you don't really get a chance to practice Japanese or use the language. It's, it's mainly just um, like everyday things like shopping and, you know, negotiating the train network. But, you know, I found it quite easy to, to just be there as an observer and just wandering around and you know, poking my head around, taking photos and that sort of thing. Did you, did you learn much Japanese? Could you speak it now? Uh, a little bit. So I can understand more than I can say. But I did try doing the Japanese language test in the summer, which was it's called the JLPT. And I right. did the most easy one, and I still failed that. So <laughs> that wasn't uh, very good. Okay. Yeah. So, so you were basically there. So your, your pupils were Japanese, presumably. Yes. And did, did you have to interact with their parents much at all, did they? Uh, sometimes. What they would do was that twice a year they'd have parents' observations, so they'd come and sit in the back of the classroom and then they'd fill in a little form where they would rate you and your lesson and maybe write little comments, which you would have to get the school receptionist to translate for you to see what they put. <laughs> Is that right? What did they say about you? Um, usually that um, the lesson was very good good and in, in, enjoyable and that the kids had fun and thank you for your hard work and your lessons that sort of thing yeah they're very polite the japanese aren't yeah. they <laughs> yeah, they don't tell you if they think it was rubbish no they wouldn't would they they wouldn't they wouldn't do that it's uh no are, are they like the um chinese and korean parents though who put massive pressure on their children course, to perform yeah. really high i mean it's 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 it's. I've heard stories about this. It's just the pressure they're put under yeah, to perform. I mean, you, you and you, you'd see the transition because as they go through the school years, once so when they're in elementary school, they're kind of fairly normal, lively, happy little kids, and then uh, when they go to junior high school, that's when they kind of start getting their souls destroyed by the Japanese schools. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really depressing this year. I had kids that were at that age where they're going to go to the junior high next year. And so that's when they're doing the extra studying for the entrance exams and going to cram schools. And they'd go from the start of the year being all happy and cheerful. And then they'd be coming in half asleep. And how are you? I'm tired. Yeah. 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 No, there was, there was a, a film from the mid, I think it was from the mid nineties. I've got it somewhere on my hard drive called the suicide club. Wow. Which was kind of a um, a metaphor for the pressure, the societal pressure that Japanese are put under, and a lot of that was set around the school. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I had students who would be in say thirteen, fourteen, and you talk to them about their daily schedules, and they'd be getting up at say four a.m. and then they'd be doing um, sports club practice for an hour or two before school. Then they go to school. Then they go to more. Uh, lessons after school then it comes English lessons and they're just you know going to bed at 11 o'clock at night and they're just absolutely shattered the whole time yeah they're, they're working the hours of a corporate executive age, yeah. age 10 yeah <laughs> for that sort of lifestyle do, do they do the parents push the musical instruments on them as well yeah you get a lot of that I mean I had two kids that were sisters and um they, they'd come to me for English lessons on the Saturday and they also did dance classes two nights a week and they'd go to cram school one or two nights a week and so on so yeah but it's yes. a big culture about saying doing stuff beyond the regular lessons i mean a lot of schools they do insist that students join a club of some sort yep. yeah because i 
when I was at boarding school, this was between 92 and 96. So it was before the handover of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of Hong Kongese children uh, in the school. And I'd say three quarters of them were grade eight at some instrument or other, usually piano, but often a violin and cello as well. Yeah. And these kids detested the instruments. And there was there was one guy, he's seventeen years old, eighteen years old, Ben Yip. He was he was miles miles older than he should have been. They all lied about their age, I'm sure, to get in the school. And all he seemed to want to do is hang around and smoke. But I remember he sat down at a piano once and started playing it, and he was brilliant. And I said to him, "Why don't you play it?" You know, I didn't know you could play the piano. He said, "When I was fourteen, I finished." He said, "I had no nowhere else to go with it." I wasn't good enough to take it to professional level, but I've been playing it since I was six, being beaten senseless by my parents um, to practice. But it was a prestige thing. It was a way of the parents to show, and it's always foreign music. It's Western music. They don't learn whatever those instruments they play in the uh, Kung Fu films. (laughs) It's always a Western classical instrument playing Western classical music because that differentiates them from presumably the peasant farmers who can't afford the instruments and they wouldn't know what Western classical music is. But it put them under massive pressure. They detested it. They hated playing it. Yeah. And and again, like I said, it's the... um... Uh, when they start going to cram schools and they that's kind of become more of a big thing over the last 10 15 years i heard from one of my co-workers so he was telling me that it used to be you would just go to them to prepare for the exams but now the kids go there pretty much every week to do extra lessons on top of what the they learn in a normal school is that right yeah yeah i mean it's ultra ultra competitive i found that in korea as well that you know, it's the standards are really, really high. Yeah. And anybody who's finishing the class is really, really clever. But if you're not in the top one or two percent, your parents give you a sound thrashing when you get home. I mean, I mean, do, how was it for you going from a British school system to a Japanese school? I mean, it must have been the, the, the difference in attentive, attentive, attentiveness of yeah. and, and parental attitude must it must have been extraordinary. Yeah. Well, bear in mind that I was working in a private extra uh, extra tuition school sort of thing. So it's the parents and kids that there are the ones that are that have that attitude. So there may well be parents that don't have that same sort of drive, but I wouldn't be involved with them because they don't send their kids to those sort of schools. Do you reckon there's chav parents in Japan? Well, there, well, there is what they call um, the, the Yankees, which are kind of like the equivalent of like white trash in Japan. Is that right? I've never yeah. heard of this. Yeah. So Yankees oh, really? were kind of like bleach blonde hair and kind of the ones that would skip school and hang around causing causing very minor sort of disturbances. But for Japanese, that was kind of very shocking. Oh, yeah, because I've, I've seen these because I've, I've, I've hung out in Tokyo twice. So I went on this holiday with my mates. I also spent a week there getting a visa renewed in 2008. So I have hung around in Tokyo and wandered around and I've seen an awful lot of Japanese films. And yeah, there is this kind of sort of gothic rock vibe, isn't there? A lot of them bleach their hair and wear the wacky clothes and, you know, the real kind of rebelling against society. But they always struck me. And this is purely from visuals, not from actually speaking to them or knowing what I'm talking about. But they always struck me as being the equivalent of the 
the posh kids rebelling against the rich parents. They didn't strike me as chavs. Um, well, again, it depends on where they are. In central Tokyo, they probably would be the better off ones, whereas like, like where, where some of the schools I worked were on the coast, they're kind of a bit more like blue-collar type areas, really. Lots of more working-class types. Right. But, uh, there's um, You're saying about the ones in Tokyo, there's... Uh, what's it called? Yoyogi Park near Harajuku, and that's where you used to get all the people hanging out on a Sunday afternoons. And the only ones you still see there are the rockabilly types who have the massive '50s style quiffs and leather jackets, and they're all dancing around in a circle to old '50s rock and roll songs. Is that what they do? I wish I'd found that. I'd have been. I'd have spent the whole week there if I'd known that that's what they did. I yeah. love rockabilly. <laughs> Oh, right. I didn't know they were into that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, I found it the most fascinating place I've been to, Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, it, honestly, if if there's one place on Earth where you could believe that aliens arrived and took over, <laughs> it would be Japan. I've never seen anything as alien as Japan. Yeah. Um, I've been to quite a few weird and wonderful places, but... The thing that struck me about Japan is how foreign it was. It's actually hard to find really foreign places now. Yeah. But I remember wandering through Tokyo for a few days and being amazed at how few Western logos there were. Well, that's changed. Is that right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you get all the usual ones, Starbucks, um, McDonald's everywhere. Taco Bell even's there now. Because when I was there, there there was a McDonald's. And what amazed me about that McDonald's is kind of related to the point I made a minute ago, that Japan's really homogenous. And they, well, when I was there, it looked to me as though they had been very successful in rejecting the encroachment of Western or American culture in many ways. I mean, it just looks so Japanese. Yet the McDonald's there was absolutely packed. It was a huge McDonald's and it was rammed. And the thing that struck me, it wasn't full of young kids. Like you go to McDonald's in France, full of teenagers, full of families, but nobody else. In Japan, I found there were these little old ladies (laughs) eating a Big Mac. And there was everybody, every cross-section of society was in this McDonald's. And I thought if there was ever a a demonstration of effective marketing, It's being able to stick a McDonald's in the middle of Tokyo and attracting little old Japanese ladies. Yeah, yeah it was pretty impressive. But, um, but the thing I struggled with there was, uh, and I don't know if this has changed now, I assumed, again, this, was, this would have been September 2008. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 10 years ago. Um, wow, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought, well, you know, because I've been to Korea and, you know, problem with this there and everywhere else. I thought, right, no problem. I'll go there, put my card in the wall, pull out some yen, or I'll pay everywhere with my card. No, I got there and found, well, firstly, the ATMs were just full of absolute gobbledygook. They didn't have English. It didn't seem to me that you actually did any banking with the ATMs. I didn't even know if it was an ATM. It was all in day glow pink with Pokemon stickers. You've got no idea what it is. And I asked at the hotel and they said the only places you can pull money out with a foreign a visa card was the international post offices. Now that's so, all changed now. So right. all the convenience stores, they'll have machines that you can put them in English and you can use international cards and withdraw cash. A lot of it's getting ready for the 2020 Olympics. So they're trying to 
update themselves for that. Ah, because I I was told that I was lucky that this place was like an international paradise now because I'd been there after the 2002 World Cup. Yeah. And before then, even the signs on the underground were all in Japanese. I mean, at least now they've transliterated them into English. So yeah. you can't read it because it's a name a foot long. And it doesn't really mean anything, but at least you can see the letters. Whereas before 2002... That was all in Japanese, and there was literally nothing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned about 2008, because I went there for the first time that year as well, in the spring for holiday. And compared then to now, again, you can see the changes, and that there's a lot more English everywhere, and lots more lots more like foreign workers there now. I mean, uh, you can go to a McDonald's now, and more often than not, you'll find you're getting served by an Indian. Is that right? Yeah. Lots of convenience stores will hire foreign workers as well now. Because the, the only foreign workers we found when we were in Tokyo and, and in Sapporo, when we went to the, um, the dodgy bars full of all the strippers, ah. they were mostly full of Filipinos. Right. Although we found one really good club that actually had Japanese girls working there. That was a lot of fun. Um, and the other, the other foreigners were the Nigerian pimps who were trying to get you into these uh, dodgy bars. Yeah, you but, still see them around in like Shinjuku and those sort of areas. Yeah, I, I thought that was... We found that really strange because, yeah, you're in the middle of Japan. Everything's Japanese. Everyone you see is Japanese. And then suddenly there's a bunch of Africans yeah. hassling you to go into these dodgy bars. And yeah. I wondered whether they do it. Actually, in Sapporo, they weren't. They were locals. But in Tokyo, they weren't. And I wondered if it's a cultural thing. Maybe the way the Japanese are, they're not very good at bullying people on the street and herding them into bars they don't really want to go into. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they're not very good at it. They're too polite for that, probably. Quite possibly. But again, yeah, you do see a lot more. Um, it's a lot more diverse now. I mean, there are so many Indian restaurants now and kebab shops, and they are run by the people who would expect to see those sort of places as well right that's interesting because uh yeah when uh, um yeah when i was there it was very uh, homogenous and that's yeah. the other funny thing about the nigerian pimps they were following us down the road this is before i'd ever been to nigeria these days i'd probably have a chat with them <laughs> um but back then we were just wanting to go somewhere else and we walked started walking away from them and they followed us and we crossed an intersection and it was almost like there was a line in the road they didn't cross yeah so obviously the police had said, right, this is your area, but we don't want to see you doing your pimping stuff further down from here. But uh, no, there were certainly no kebab shops. In fact, I was trying to get something to eat on one of my nights when I was on my own in Tokyo. And I found what looked like a pretty decent restaurant. So I went in and yeah, I was given a menu, which was uh, all in gobbledygook. And I started pointing. It wasn't until I left that I actually realised that I'd eaten in a Korean restaurant. Ah, oh, right, yeah. Couldn't even tell the difference. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because uh, the Korean menu was for some reason in Japanese, but yeah, it's full of Koreans. Yeah. Yeah, well, there, again, there's a big Korean community in Japan as well, and it's a lot of Korean culture is very popular now, especially the Korean music and the Korean dramas, and those sort of things. Is that right? Yeah. You'd ask the students, uh, you know, what's your favourite music? And they'd say, oh, K-pop. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. Their parents and grandparents must be having a fit over that. Quite possibly, yeah. 
Because I went to Korea in... I was last in Seoul in 2007, I think, maybe 2008. But mm-hmm. I spent a month there in Christmas 2005. Yeah. And I found that really, really homogenous as well. A yeah. bit more... There was a bit more foreign stuff going on, cause, mainly because of the massive US base that's yeah. right in the middle of Seoul, yeah. plus all the tourism for the DMZ and stuff. So I found it... But I still found it really, really homogenous. And trying yeah. to find food that I could eat was pretty difficult. I'd eat probably... I'd probably eat more of it now. Yeah. But back then, I, I really didn't know Asia at all. And um, and I imagine Seoul's changed a lot since then. But it's kind of fun at the same time. It's a bit of a... It's a bit of a shame in a way because there was something quite adventurous about going to these places where, you know, you really, really are completely lost. Yeah. You can still do that in China. I've heard that, but I've heard Shanghai and Beijing are pretty international, but anywhere else you're kind of lost. Yeah. Yeah. I, I visited some cities in China which are quite off the tourist trail. And as you said, there it's a small city by Chinese standards, only 3 million people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you. I met these two French girls uh, in the hostel I stayed at who were of North African origin and the looks we'd get walking down the street together, they was, everyone was just jaws are dropping and following us down the road. They're like, oh my God, can you believe this? Yeah, there. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of that still in all over China. The Turkish yeah. girl I knew, she's blonde or blondish yeah. and she used to have the kids coming and touching her hair. <laughs> Yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah. Uh, and and she, she'd say that um, if she was in a sauna, for instance, these women would be staring at her body because the Chinese women have never seen a Caucasian body before. Yeah. So they're really, really staring at her. But it's, um, I'm sure that, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure it's still, I mean, I don't know what Beijing and Shanghai are like now, but um, a friend of mine worked in China in the mid-90s Oh, and he went there with a, a black guy, an American, who was like seriously bright. He learned Mandarin and everything. And he said it was horrendous. There were people like running down the street making monkey noises after him. Yeah. You well, know, one of my um, co-workers, um, one of the Chinese staff, we were chatting one time and we were talking about London. And she just casually said, I, I'd, I'd like to go to London, but I'm a bit scared because there's too many black people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, yeah. I'm sorry about yeah, in fact, I, I, you you hear that from uh, you don't have to go to Asia to hear that. Yeah. You can hear that from people a lot. Uh, you hear that from Eastern Europeans. Yeah, yeah. It's um. I mean, I, where was I? I was talking to somebody quite recently. In fact, it might even be someone on my. It wasn't someone on my course. No, someone quite recently. Can't remember, but I said they said they'd been to Paris. I said, you know, how would you find it? Oh no, I, I felt scared. Too many blacks. Like bloody hell! Yeah, <laughs> it's a, but I think in a lot of it, it's just it's just pure perception. Um, it's uh, one of the things I found when I was in Japan. I remember one day being on the and bear in mind I'm six foot four, mm-hmm. and it was summer, so I'm walking along in shorts, t-shirt, and sandals, and I'm on the underground in rush hour, and I was mm-hmm. in one of these huge stations. And it was absolutely packed. And I was three feet taller than anyone else there. Mm-hmm. And everybody in that station, must have been about 2,000 people, were Japanese except for me. Yeah. And it, it was almost like it was. It was like being in an alien world. 
Yeah. I'm like, God, if these people look at me and decide they're scared or they don't like me, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Because, you know, it was it was really weird. And you never feel that in you can't feel that in Paris or London or anywhere in Europe. It's so uh it's just so mixed up. But I found in Japan yeah. and Korea was so homogenous. You could you could walk yeah. along for ages. You wouldn't see anyone else other than 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 locals yeah. well again in, in japan it's like that still in most of the big cities apart from tokyo and maybe osaka's got the similar levels of diversity now i think i read somewhere a few months ago that something like there's over like over a million like a, a million foreigners in tokyo now so that's roughly a fifth of the population right where have they all come from uh, well, again, it's it's the it's the English teachers, it's the um, U.S. military people, and then there's lots of people who they're doing the low skill jobs, like in the convenience stores and so on. Like I said there's so many people working in those sort of shops now because they don't they can't get the Japanese staff for them. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess so. I mean, I'm actually now you're talking about this. I, I was thinking the other day. I watched a film where I saw Japan on it, and I was half thinking maybe when my MBA's finished next summer, applying for a job of some sort in Japan, just to go there for a year and live there. Yeah. I think uh, between living there and living in New York is something I'd love to do. Mm-hmm. And being in the oil business, that was very difficult to do. I mean, Yokohama there was a possibility, but I always struggled to get out there. Um, but yeah, it's now, now I'm out of the oil business. I'm thinking, just seeing what kind of jobs there are and maybe going out for a bit. I've heard that the pay isn't very good and you live in this tiny little shoebox. What was your accommodation like? Did the school provide it? Uh, well, I had lived in two different places. So when I first got there, I was in a company-provided apartment, which was, like you say, one one-room apartment with a tiny little shower and a sink and uh, one hot plate, basically. Yeah. And I was there for six months until my which was the bare minimum you could stay there and then i moved to a shared house so there was eight rooms in that house and it was occupied most of the time fully when i was there so that was quite an international mix so between half and three quarters of the people were japanese and the rest were other foreigners so did the japanese guys take you out on the piss uh Sometimes I'd go out with the people from my house, but we'd often have house parties in the actual building. Right. And yeah, I'd, I'd mainly end up going out with my like co-worker friends, or I did have a few other Japanese friends who I would see occasionally, but the trouble is when you're working in the schools like I did, you work Friday evenings and you're working in the day on Saturday, so you're limited in your time you can go out. Yeah, that's a bit crap, yeah. And I guess it's not like the oil business where you can turn up hungover and not do any work and you still get paid. Yeah. Because that's what all the guys in Yokohama were doing. They were going out and getting smashed and coming over, you know, coming home and, you know, going in the office and checking the email and, you know, doing their level best not to do any work. Because it was funny. The reason I asked that, when I was in Japan in uh, with, with my friends, we started off our pub crawl on the second night we were in Tokyo and we were going into these bars and they were obviously tourist traps and we were paying an absolute fortune we were like going in one bar buying four drinks and getting absolutely shafted which we didn't really care about because we paid nothing to get over there we were living in Sakhalin so it was only an hour flight and that was free because there was a company jet um, (laughs) and uh, you know we were earning good money so we didn't really care but we were we were getting shafted yeah. Then we found ourselves in this other bar 
And we met these two Japanese guys who were, they were probably in their mid-twenties. They worked for Hugo Boss. And they were really interested in meeting some foreigners and probably Mm. practicing their English. So they took us out and we went, they took us to this restaurant where we sat on the floor. I remember it was really uncomfortable. We sat on the floor, six inch high table. And we were eating and drinking for about two, three hours. And when the bill finally came, I remember two things. One, there was this huge argument because they insisted on paying for it and we tried to and this whole kind of loss of face thing going on and yeah. we managed to defuse that, but they were great guys. But we, there were six of us eating, drinking for about three hours and we paid less for that than we did for one round in the bars we were drinking in earlier in the night. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, you need to get away from like the, the main streets and find the little backroom bars to get the deals. What often happens though in those ones you in the first place that there'll be a cover charge as well which won't be listed on the drinks menu so that's why it's always a lot more yeah yeah it's um yeah i seem to remember that i mean we, we were just chucking money around we didn't care but i i do, I do remember thinking how much were we being ripped off in those first bars yeah. for four drinks when we've been eating for six yeah, yeah but it's um, I, I went to a place one time with some people i met at a, a meetup event we went to a bar afterwards and we had literally one drink each but with the cover charge and also they gave us snacks which they charged for as well it works at about three thousand yen a person yeah and how much is three thousand yen again uh moment about that 20 20 25 pounds maybe yeah now that i remember when we went up to cause after tokyo we flew to we went to Rizutsu, then sapporo Sorry, oh. Niseko, Niseko. Sapporo oh. is the nearest town. We flew to Sapporo yeah. when Ski and Rizutsu took the bus to Niseko. That's right. And we were going out in Niseko. Yeah. And we were walking in, sitting down, and they would bring you a bowl of snacks. Yeah. Now, a lot of the time, these would be raw cabbage leaves. Yeah. And that in itself, just sitting down and being given that bowl of raw cabbage leaves, suddenly yeah. it's 20 quid on the bill. Yeah. And we were being seen off massively. So, yeah, we, we stopped going out in Niseko because uh, we were just being seen off everywhere we went, which <laughs> well, was quite it's annoying. Always that area. It's, everyone goes there for skiing, so it's, there'll be lots of bars designed to rip off the tourists. That's, that's exactly what happened. It was absolutely packed full of Aussies. And I remember it because it was uh, some Australian had gone missing up there he's i can't remember his name now but there were photos of him everywhere he'd left one of the bars uh and we'd heard about this before we went there he'd left one of the bars and just never seen again Ooh. and everyone's saying oh i know the japanese have got him and murdered him I'm like, well the japanese aren't really into that not with blokes anyway yeah. and um it turns out he'd left the bar at 3 a.m wearing a t-shirt being australian you know a bit dumb oh. um obviously wasn't used to the snow and they had huge search parties looking for him couldn't find him anyway when the thaw came in spring he was found at the bottom of a gully somewhere um and we'd all come from Sakhalin which has exactly the same meteorological conditions and when the snow comes down in those powder areas it's impressive how quickly it builds up yeah I mean I've seen cars covered in a couple of hours if you if you slip and fall you'll be covered in 15, 20 minutes of snow. So people wouldn't know you were there. Yeah. Um, it really does come down. Um, but that was, that was quite an interesting place. Yeah. Did you go up there? Did you go skiing up there at all? 
I didn't go skiing, but I went to Sapporo for the snow festival this year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's quite interesting to see all the huge sculptures they build out of snow and ice and so on. That's... Yeah, they used to do them in Sakhalin, the ice sculptures. Yeah. And the, But the, is it Harbin in China where they do yeah. them? Yeah, I went there as well when I was in China. That's amazing, apparently. Yeah, it was. It was very, very cold. I think it was minus 35 when we were there. Well, it would have to be if you're car- carving cathedrals out of ice and expect them to stay for a festival. Yeah. yeah I don't know how that compares to Sakhalin beer, but I'd never been so cold as when I was in Harbin. That was just insane. No, Sakhalin wasn't that cold, certainly in the south. It was more like northern Japan. It was... um. Yeah. It's, it's why we got lots of snow, because if it's really, really freezing, freezing, you don't get a whole load of snow. But it was probably sackling during the day in winter. It'd be minus 12, minus 10. Yeah. This is down in the south. Yeah. You go further north, you go to the north of the island, it gets a lot drier. And then it gets down to about minus 20 and put the wind on top of that. It gets really cold. Yeah. But it's not like Siberia. It's not minus yeah. 30, minus 40 where we were. And, and when I went across to the mainland, to Khabarovsk, which is right on the Amura River, so you look across the river, it's a wide river, it's miles wide, but you can see China on the other side, and Harbin's not far away, yeah. and that was bloody cold. Yeah. That it, was you know, it's, um, how how mild the UK is, uh, particularly due to things like the Gulf Stream, because we're actually like further north than like, Beijing and Harbin, yet we don't have anything near as much coldness as they do there. Yeah, it was being in the middle of a landmass, isn't it? So yeah. it makes it cold. And the other place I've been so cold was uh, Korea in December. Oh, yeah. Yeah, December 2005, I was in there. And the wind came down from the north. Yeah. And I'd, I'd read the books and seen the documentaries on the, the Americans fighting in North Korea, the retreat from the Chosen Reservoir. And I can only imagine what that was like. It was so cold. It was dry. There was no snow. There was no frost on the cars. Yeah. It was just this freezing. It was so cold. Did you do the DMZ tour when you were there? No, I didn't. I wanted to. Uh, for some reason, I didn't. Um, I'm not sure why. I think I was a bit lazy. Um, no, I did the I did the war museum. Oh yeah, that's good. That was brilliant. And what I liked yeah. about it, there was absolutely no attempt at objectivity. Yeah. It was, you know, when you're especially the Western museums now, they take away anything that's offensive. It's all sort of, well, there's both sides, blah, blah, blah. There's none of this in this museum. It was, yeah. well, it's a peaceful morning when the communist bastards from the North came down. And, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, oh, it, I went there as well when I was, I was in Korea. And again, they, they, they flat out call Mao and um, what's his name? Kim war criminals. Oh yeah. Is, yeah. There's, oh yeah. They, they, they don't beat about the bush, but it was really well done. All the, um, all the recreate they did like a few recreated tunnel systems and things yeah. and uh dioramas no it was really good i remember that and in fact they, they had all the names of the american dead outside yeah and i i tracked a few of them down from a book i'd read yeah mm-hmm. no that was really good and and i did i walked around a few of the palaces oh yeah um because i was near it i i was right in the center of, oh, yeah, of seoul um so I walked around a few of the palaces. I took the train up to the foot of those hiking mountains up in the north. Oh, yeah. I went there. I w- did a... Went to a couple of places, but, yeah, it was it was too damn cold, and I was working pretty hard. Well, yeah, I was, actually. It was quite hard work, yeah, um, back then. So I... And, and also, I don't know, doing stuff on your own, it's a bit... 
Yeah. I, I, well, I don't mind doing it, but yeah. But um, I remember going to one of the war cemeteries. I think it might have been in Busan, and the, the guy there was like the volunteer tour. He's like, where are you from? And I said, the UK. And he's like, oh, thank you so much for all your contribution to us you know our liberation and stuff which was quite nice oh yeah now that they're, they're yeah they're still you can see there's a lot of gratitude and what i liked as well it, it did it spoke a lot about the wasn't just about the americans it was a lot about because the turks put a huge effort in in korea they fought yeah. extremely well in korea lost a lot of people and the yeah. only people that ever remember this now are koreans and turks yeah um okay we hear a bit more about the gloucester regiment in uh in the uk but there there was a lot about all the international um, contributions and there was also a section I think it was there there's a big section on the Korean contribution to the Vietnam War yes yes I remember that yeah and it showed pictures of them all how, how they'd be you know their sleeping arrangement that's right because it actually went into the modern day Korean military as well how they sleep they do the the, the barrack rooms and the, the taekwondo lessons yeah. and all that I remember quite a bit of this now yeah. Yeah, but the bit about Vietnam was really interesting because the Koreans did really well in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and I read one of the books I've got. It's up on the shelf behind me, but I can't remember which one. Some Americans were had some Koreans seconded to them, their unit. And the Koreans headed off one morning and said, we're going to go and find some VC. <laughs> and the Americans went, are you sure you want to do that? I said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be all right. They came back 12 hours later with a sack full of heads. <laughs> and the, yeah, and the American, the Americans went. Maybe we should just leave this to the Koreans. Yeah, yeah, I'm nice. yeah. yeah. I, I did do the DMZ tour, which is very, very interesting place to go, and it's very surreal. And some of the stories they tell you about the thing is just unbelievable. My my favorite one was the about the flagpole competition they had. Right. So basically the. They, the North and the South kept trying to outdo each other with bigger and bigger flags and flagpoles. And it reached the point where the North Korean one now is the, I think it's officially the largest flag in the world. And if it's, if it rains, they've got to take it down before the weight of the water pulls the flagpole over. <laughs> yeah, I have, I've seen that. And they've got like a Potemkin villages on the other side, haven't they? Yeah. yeah. But how, how much of that at the DMZ do you think is authentic and how much of it is just hammed up for tourists? Oh, I think it's all fairly authentic. I mean, the tour I did, I did the official USO one. So it's the one run by the US military. And we got escorted by US Marines who are, you know, on frontline duty every other day when they're not doing these tours. And, you know, they take you into the meeting room, which is on the middle of the border. And they show you all the tunnels and stuff. And it's, it's quite intense, to put it mildly. Yeah, no, I've seen the pictures of it. I've known guys who did it, but it's uh, so yeah. Some, in fact, I think I was gonna do it with the Venezuelan lad who was out there with me, but we ended up never doing it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, because the American army's there; they're only there as a tripwire. Yeah, there's there's nowhere near enough of them to make any difference to an invasion, except yeah. that it's the tripwire that will bring the U.S. into the war. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. um, although why they need to put Marines there, I don't know why they don't just put a load of I don't know cooks, and <laughs> cooks yeah. and cooks and HR managers. I don't know. There's perhaps something with fight at least. I suppose. But yeah. is the US still got a big a big presence in Japan? Are they still in Okinawa? Yeah, they've got a massive base in Okinawa, and actually near where I was. So if you go down the coast from Yokohama, there's the massive base at Yokosuka, which is US Navy and like JSDF as well, but there's also air bases there and 
all sorts. Where I lived initially in my first one-room apartment, it was right near the U.S. Navy Air Base, and I get woken up by F-16s and F-18s taking off in the morning. Right. Yeah. So how, how are they received there? Because I, I know that on Okinawa and other probably other areas in Japan near U.S. bases, there was a lot of controversy. There was yeah. This is what I used to read. I don't know how much of it's just hammed up by lefty media, but there was a lot of complaints about the rapes and violence and general stuff going on with uh, the military, and there were campaigns to get them off Okinawa. Yeah, there's still that sort of stuff going on, and I used to see, um, I, when I lived in Yamato, which is the place where the airbase was near, you'd see people uh, you know, collecting signatures signatures for petitions and outside the station about the military base there and how they don't like it and the comment i i heard in your costco was how it's the one place where people are less friendly to foreigners because they're just sick of all the u.s military there that's interesting so i didn't see that in korea i was down in where's the u.s base in seoul is it uh it not it I can't remember. It begins with I. Anyway, it's in the center of uh, center of Seoul, pretty much. And I went down there to find some bars, and I didn't see any of that. But what you did see is Koreans protesting their own companies. Koreans love to protest. Oh yeah. And I was in the uh, the company I was in. Apparently, they they build bridges and stuff like that. And apparently, they they killed some worker or not paid someone or cleared the wrong farm i don't even know what it was about but every day between one and two there'd be this mass protest outside but it was really well organized yeah. everyone had the red hats on and they all had the little bibs on they were basically a bit like a bit like the, the yellow vests yeah. <laughs> you know they had they had their uniform like in, in japan I, I remember one time actually i think it was in november i saw a pro-trump protest which was interesting really yeah there was only about seven people there, but that was quite bizarre to see a, a pro-Trump group in Japan. But do, do they protest their own corporations like the Koreans do? Um, only if it's due to things like environmental impacts. So there was um, a big thing I was reading about, about like illegal dumping on one of these islands in the Central Sea and how the locals weren't happy about this company that was just leaving all toxic waste and stuff there. And it was a big, long court battle, which took a few years to sort out. Do you think they'd have minded if they were dumping it outside Japanese waters? Um, probably not. In fact, it was in their backyards, I suppose. That's the main issue with them. Yeah, that's what, that's what I... Uh, yeah, I'd probably guess that as well. I, mean, I don't know, but I, I, I tended to find that the Koreans would only protest their own companies for what they did in Korea towards other Koreans. They certainly didn't seem to care what they were doing anywhere else. Yeah. I'm going to be surprised about that. So what's, yeah. what's your plans now? Do you plan to go back to Asia and do this again? or? Uh, well, I've got a job in the UK now, so at a secondary school uh, near where I live. So I'm going to be working there until July. And then my aim is to find an international school job for next year. Right. Where are you looking? Uh, ideally, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taipei, or maybe Shanghai. Okay. Singapore I know quite well. I used to know reasonably well. Again, this is back in the mid-2000s. The problem with Singapore is a lot of fun in small doses, but it's, it's, it is very small. Yeah. And it's very sterile. Um, Hong Kong would be good. Hong Kong looked like a place you could get up to all kinds of mischief in. Yeah. I've been to Hong Kong a couple of times already, uh, just like passing through. I was, I was actually there on Christmas Eve briefly, just on my flight back from Japan. 
practice for like four hours in the airport. And have you have you been to Singapore before? Yeah. So when I when I finished working in China, I spent about six weeks traveling around in Asia before I came home. So I did two weeks in Korea, two weeks in Thailand, and a week in Singapore. So yeah, and I've got a few friends that work there already, both in schools and in the financial sector as well. Yeah, Singapore, Singapore be a yeah, there's, there's pros and cons about Singapore. I know people who've been out there and absolutely loved it. I, I used to go down and hang out with a mate of mine who worked in a bank, and he had this fantastic house, um, well, apartment, then later on he had a house. And I used to stay there basically rent-free as long as I wanted. So I, I saw a, and I'd go out with all these mates who worked in the bank yeah. down in the, the financial district. Yeah. But I did think to live there would get sterile very quickly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a good location as well for visiting elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It is a great, it's a great location. I mean, you can you can take the bus up to KL. You can yeah. you get the ferry across to Indonesia. Yeah, but it's. Um, I have to say, I probably wouldn't be much interested myself in working down in Southeast Asia, mm. um, but certainly Japan. Yeah, Japan, maybe even China. I don't know. Probably not China, but I'd certainly look at Japan. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'll just decide to do this teaching English as a foreign language thing and just go out there. Do they pay you well to do that? Do you, do, you, do they pay you enough to live? Oh yeah, you, yeah. It depends on you know, how sensible you are. I mean, I managed to save up money while I was out there, and you know, didn't blow the budget each month. It's I might as... look at that. I might look at that actually. I mean, I wonder what the age limit is. They're probably all full of fresh-faced twenty-somethings, and I turn up. No, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, I'm mid 30s as well, so I was one of the more older, new ones. But you know, particularly the senior teachers and the people who are the ones with the wives and kids, they can be any age there, really. But yeah, you do get a lot of fresh graduates out there. But I hear Korea is the best place to go in terms of like salary and benefits because a lot of the Korean schools will pay for your flights and they'll provide accommodation as well, which the Japanese schools won't. Yeah, I I don't know. Korea Korea doesn't attract me as much as Japan. Yeah. Um I've worked with a lot of Koreans. Um very different people I found. In fact, I I worked with a Japanese company and quite a few Korean companies. Mm -hmm. Um there's a big difference. The Japanese are very tough. They will argue their case very hard and for a long time but the mm -hmm. difference with them is once at the end of the argument they've agreed you never have to discuss that again right. they'll say you need to do this no we don't yes you do no we don't yeah and you'll go backwards and forwards you'll argue and they'll you know the argument might be it might be good or bad it doesn't really matter but at the end of it once you've got an agreement the guy will say okay we'll do this and you never have to revisit that subject because it will be done. Mm -hmm. Oh, the Koreans. Oh, my God. You're two days arguing with somebody. And eventually he concedes and agrees. Mm -hmm. Two days later, you have to start the entire conversation again with a different guy who just resets it back to where it was. And it's this war of attrition that goes on for, oh, it's, it, it's, it's terrible. So they don't have the same... They have the same concept of losing face, which yeah. makes them very tough negotiators, but they don't have the same honour code. So oh, the yeah. Koreans, once they've agreed something, well, it's, it's nothing for them just to renege on it. Nothing at all. The Japanese would never do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, but yeah, I mean, I think the guys who worked with Chioda had very good experiences. Yeah. Certainly, in comparison, when you talk to guys who worked with Daewoo or Hyundai or one of them, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's um, and Tai Taiwan, I know nothing about. Uh, have you ever been there? I went to Taipei for a few days last year, mainly because one of my friends from when I worked in Beijing had gone there for work, so I met with them. So yeah, it. it it's interesting because, again, tai, Taiwan was a Japanese territory for about 50 years. And so it's still got quite a lot of Japanese legacy there as well. Right. Yeah. No, I see, yeah. Same Japanese, same Japanese like brands and chains there. And lots of stuff is in Japanese as well as Chinese as well. He says, not a place I know much about. Funnily enough, my next podcast guest, which will be sometime in the early year, he, he's out in uh, Taiwan. He's, he's running reservoirs or something out there. Whoa. And yeah, I like to get people on who've done some kind of niche job that most other people won't. I don't think it gets more niche than managing reservoirs in Taiwan. Yeah, that's a, that's a very um, specialist job there, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, know, I know nothing about the place. So it'd be, and it's not really a place where it's not really a tourist destination. So I don't know a lot of people who've even been there. Yeah. They're trying to sort of sell it a bit more now but again it's mainly uh, there's something also is like a big transit hub as well now they're trying to get the long haul flights in there rather than singapore or hong kong or wherever right do they even have an airline uh yeah i think there's this it's like china airways because um again because as far as they're concerned they're officially china still that's right yeah they're still the old republic of china aren't they yeah yeah this i think the best way to summarize it is that there's two chinas and each one thinks it's the only one yeah, and so are you? Uh, so what are you just going to cuddle your connections to Japan now? You don't. Uh, what's what's uh, that's the thing. I mean, when when you leave a place, I mean, it depends. A good reflection on how you got on there is how many connections you leave behind. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I've, I've made lots of good friends there who I'll hopefully stay in touch with, and you know, I may well go back there at some point in the future. But I think if I did go back to work, I'd want to try living in another area for a bit maybe Osaka or maybe Sapporo even because that's quite a nice city cold yeah but then it's at least you've not got the same horrible heat in the summer there yeah that surprised me I found Tokyo bloody hot in summer yeah god that was hot yeah okay all right well I'm sure it's going to be a bit of a bit of a uh I don't know about shock, but certainly going to be a big change going back into the English system after that. Yes, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes, but we'll see, we'll see what happens, really. Yeah. As long as I get my NQT sorted out, that's the main issue. Your what sorted out? NQT. What's that? Okay, so when you do your teacher training in the UK, you you do your training year, and at the end you're a, you get qualified teacher status, which are called QTS. Right. But then you still you're considered a newly qualified teacher, and you have to do another year where you're basically on probation. And you have to be signed off at the end that you are okay to be a proper high school teacher. Right. And that's why I, I, I'm not finished that, so I'm trying to get that finished now while I'm back here, so I can then do the international school jobs. Right. Okay. Yeah, because actually the international school, the, the, I knew guys who were. Working in the Shell International School oh, yeah. out in Sackley, they they did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I knew the headmaster. He was um, 
I won't say his name. No, no, I could do, but it's just, yeah, just because just the story's quite funny. Yeah. But he, he was great. He was this old school headmaster and yeah. really no nonsense, really. And the parents loved him because he was proper, you know, like old school, right? You know, this is, this is how it's going to be. But I knew him. I didn't know him in that capacity at all. I knew him because he was a member of a beer drinking club I, I was part of. And so I just knew him as this kind of really cool guy, very funny. You know, he'd throw his house open. We'd all turn up, drink loads of beer, um, sing stupid songs, play darts, which would leave, leave a load of holes in the wall. And it's only later I found out that he was actually this kind of old school headmaster. But I remember once around his place, we did a, an hour of power, which is where you have this, you basically have tons of beer and you drink one shot every minute. Oh, yeah. Shot of beer. And again, it sounds easy. Yeah. And it is easy for 10 minutes. At 20 minutes, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit tricky. By 40 minutes, you're wasting. You've got another 20 minutes to go. And this was in Sacklin in summer. So it got dark at about 11 o'clock at night. So it was still sun up, broad daylight. Eight o'clock, I'm leaning over the headmaster's balcony, throwing up into his flower bed. And there's, there's a, a woman walking by with her children. And the kid's going, isn't that the headmaster's house? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mind. He, he didn't seem to care. But yeah, but I, I knew a couple of the guys who worked for him. And, and it was, uh, yeah, the Shell International School seemed to pay pretty well. Um, yeah. And of course, you've you got, you got very selective um, kids as well, because all the parents are well-educated. They're, you know, they've got cash and, you know, yeah. so it worked out pretty well. But it's... Um, but if you remember, yeah, we were talking about on my blog when I said teachers talk a lot about the workload and lesson planning and things. Yeah. And I assumed that, you know, okay, the first year you're doing this, you have to, you know, get all your plans together. Yeah. But isn't it just a case after that of, you know, you, you, you obviously have to make amendments for changes in the curriculum and changes in various things and every you know everything will always change no matter what you're in yeah. but isn't it a case of okay you 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 spend a year or two working out how to deliver your lessons then you've got a solid set of slides and notes and everything else you in implement the 10 20 percent change each year and then you just turn the handle as if you're making sausages well again because when i was Say now, I, you know, I've done those first two years in the UK, but I've not really done the following year since. So for me, it's just the experience of the, as you say, preparing the meat, as it were, really. So hopefully it will be easier in the future. But, uh, but it depends also on what you're doing. Because, like, for example, the first year I was working in UK schools, I didn't teach years nine or ten, I don't think. So if I if I went in to teach them now, I'd have to start from scratch pretty much. And... Again, I was there when they were bringing in the new uh, GCSE, so that changed everything a lot. And a lot of the stuff from like the old GCSE level was brought down to the Key Stage 3 level. Is, are those the reforms that Gove did? Yeah. Yeah, so the new GCSE is where it's like grade 9 to 1 rather than A, B, C, D and so on. So what, what's, what's your opinion on that? Because I know that there, it, there was a lot of... Uh, I saw a lot of teachers on Facebook saying that he's wrecked the education system or something. What's your view on Gove's reforms? Um, some of them were, were very good, but others were a bit more mixed. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, he was like decentralising things. On the other hand, he was 
making it more central with like particularly in terms of like the national curriculum became a lot more prescriptive and but you, but you could opt out of it so that's kind of doing opposites to each other really right. yeah i mean some some of the exams did definitely need reforming and if you look at the old like btechs and the old gccs they were ridiculous some of the things you could had to do to get a pass in them so it's got harder now they have actually got the standards are being improved a bit do you think yeah i think that's showing the fact that the you know for the first time in 15 years you didn't have record level of passes when they first came out because they were that much more rigorous oh is that right i didn't i didn't notice that but yeah i mean it's it's bit it was a running joke wasn't it that i think something like wasn't there a time when something like 90 percent of people got c and above or or uh, or they were getting a's or something it was just completely meaningless yeah they were they were like that at one point sort of back at the start of last decade but they, it was again it was um what was i gonna say a lot of the you know, reforms were opposed because he made it uh, easier for people to get into it. For example, like, uh, he got rid of the requirements for schools to have teachers with QTS, particularly for the academies and also for the free schools. Right. So again, so unqualified teachers get paid less than a teacher with QTS. So that's why all the teachers were against that. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I mean, and, and that's the problem with education <laughs> in the UK I cannot trust a single word that any teacher says that unless it's someone like you who I've, you know, kind of, you've got a record of saying sensible stuff on other topics. But if, if I open the newspaper and find that the unions or a particular teacher on Facebook is saying something, I can't trust it. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're so self-serving a lot of the time. So it's hard to know whether they've got a legitimate complaint or not. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to a guy when I was doing my training, who is when there was going to be a strike the next day. And he was saying that he'd, uh, he'd never been on strike before. And he felt that this was something that he felt he had to do. So there was that side of it. But then, you know, I didn't really know the issues too much then. So I don't know. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we're probably not as bad in the UK as they are in the US, but education in the US is completely unreformable. Yeah, that's just yeah. impossible, and it's and it's it's just letting so many people down because it's it's just being it's producer capture. It's like same as so many other uh, state provided services. It just yeah. becomes captured by the people providing it. Yeah, just we were saying about career earlier. There was a TV show I saw before I went to China where it was like a school swap between a school in Wales and a school in South Korea, <laughs> and the. And the, yeah, the English, the Welsh kids, they were just floored by how much work the Korean kids did. And then when they brought the Korean kids over to the UK, they gave them a GCSE mass paper to do. Oh, God. And they were finished in about 20 minutes. And they were like, this is really easy. How can anyone fail it? Yeah, and it was going all right till the Korean students were taken on a rugby match followed by a pub crawl. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I can believe it. It's Look, it, it's... um. This this is what they find when uh, Asian students turn up in the American universities. You know, they're absolutely smashing the entrance exam to the point they have to artificially limit the places. They're just... Uh... The thing is, though, I learned this from... You can see it working with uh, Korean companies. But I also saw it with my Hong Kongese classmates when I was at school. It's It's very rigorous the way they learn things like maths, but there's absolutely zero room for lateral thought. Yes. It's just, they can 
solve any problem in the sense that the problem is properly structured in the first place, which is useful in some level, but not in others. And a good example of this, they, they weren't able to sense check their results. There was a guy on, who I did physics A-level with, um, Geraldo Two. He was from, uh, he was from, what's that? gambling den that the Portuguese oh, owned. He was from Macau. So that's why I had a, a Portuguese name. He spoke Portuguese. He was just a tiny little kid. He was um oh he's a bizarre looking fellow, but he was a ever so nice guy. Um but he was doing his physics, you know, we were doing the homework and things. Yeah. And he was could work really fast at the maths, but he wasn't really applying common sense. So we'd have to work out something like, you know, what's the height of this building or something or what's the distance what's the length of this rugby pitch and he'd be coming out because he'd made a mistake he'd come out with an answer that was three four orders of magnitude out yeah and he wouldn't have the sense to go hang on a building can't be six kilometers high or rugby pitch can't be four millimeters yeah and that's the problem they weren't able to really look at the problem as a whole yeah and so you see a lot of this sort of follow the route yeah. and they're really good. But if they hit a snag, eek. Um, and it also, I found with the Koreans, it makes them terrible at working with other cultures. Yeah. Cause they, yeah, so carry on. No, no, you can, you go on. Yeah, that's why with the school that I was working at in China, they were doing a Western curriculum so that they could do that sort of um, lateral thinking and to prepare them for the universities in the West. Yeah, and the guys who are worth their absolute weight in gold in a Korean, massive Korean company, I'm sure it's true in Japanese companies as well and Chinese ones, is the guys who've been educated abroad. I, yeah. uh, When I was um, working in, or sort of seconded into a Korean company, I had to deal with a, one of the senior managers was, uh, he'd been to an American university, spoke English with an American accent, even though he was Korean. And he stood out a mile. He just was able, you were able to communicate with a guy. And it was nothing to do with language. It was just to do with an understanding of what the other person, where the other people are coming from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, although I still think it puts them in pretty good stead to be, thrashed into learning this maths properly i'm not sure it'll help them do things like deliver projects that's the problem yeah but again you have to look at the like the economy in those sort of places i mean they're still very much heavy engineering and heavy manufacturing companies so they want people who can do the like routine tasks but don't really need so much the more creative side of things and their whole management structure is tied into the culture where the boss says do this and 3,000 yeah. people salute and do it. Yeah, it's very hierarchical still. Yeah, and in Korea I found it was really weird because there was no sort of linear progression. You arrive in a company and without any exaggeration, I saw these open plan offices and it was 40 desks by 40 desks in a square. So what's that, 1,600 desks all identical, these tiny cubicles, absolutely identical. Same chair, same computer, same phone. Now, in that, amongst those desks, you will have the guy who's just joined, comes straight out of his national service, who's 20 years old and doesn't even shave, 
alongside somebody with 25 years experience, seriously senior engineer leading the process design of a project, they are basically at the same rank. But after about 30 years, suddenly there's a massive jump. So suddenly that senior guy will now be in a big office with his own car and everyone will look up to him and carry his bag for him. And he's like really has been moved up. And there's sort of one or two big jumps above that. But until that point, until you're like 45, you're just, you're you're basically sitting there with the grad students and there's no difference. So it's a really weird structure. It's, um, it's not like in like in the French companies where, you know, there is this gradual progression as you get older. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, you're all at the same level. Then suddenly, wham, you're up in, you know, you're a big boss. Yeah. Um, they are, I know the, well, the the motor industry particularly, they're very like that and very like non-hierarchical and so on. I mean, I remember seeing about when back in the day when it was still BL and Rover and how when they were working with Honda and they tried to bring in some of that Honda style corporate culture. It doesn't work, does it? No, it's um It it did for a short while, but then once BMW took over, that kind of all went out the window again. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of I mean it's a lot of people try to bring in um you know the the working culture from other countries, but ultimately yeah. it's tied into who the people are. Yeah. I mean I've worked in places in the UK that tried doing things like is it 5s or 7s one of those things which is like the toyota approach to management and stuff and yeah with mixed results yeah it's i mean obviously they obviously it, it can work in some ways because there's a nissan plant in sunderland and i can't think of two places more different than japan and sunderland yeah. um so obviously it can work in some ways but i do find you know people say well why can't you know brits work like germans well brits aren't germans that's why yeah, that's, that's the simple answer. And the French companies struggle a lot of the time because there's all these cultural traits which yeah. go right back to the schools, the education, the, the authority a teacher has at school, the competition amongst school kids and how teachers in French schools um, grade the pupils, this kind of stuff. I mean, and this has this huge impact on right the way through to the professional life and industry. Yeah. And I actually think that Brits do a very good job of straddling all that. I'd say that's the strengths of Brits. From, yeah. from lo- looking at Brits working abroad, I wouldn't say we're particularly good at anything. Like, there's always a country that does stuff better than us. Yeah. But we're not bad at everything. Yeah. We're, and and that's the key. We're, if, if, if Japan's 90% good at something, but 10% good at something else, and Germany brilliant at something else, the Brits will muddle through anything. Yeah. So if we're, no matter where we are, we've got, we're 60% good at anything and 90% yeah. good at nothing. Yeah. And when you're chucked in somewhere, like I, I take a guess that there's probably more Brit foreigners working in japan than any others maybe americans but you probably won't find many french out there would you i I knew one french um woman who was working in a hotel but yeah not many yeah you wouldn't find portuguese french uh greeks um 
Norwegians working in Japan or, or, or anywhere. You just don't really see them in great numbers. Brits are everywhere because yeah. we, we kind of, we're good at, we've got so many feet in so many camps. Yeah. That does make us very watered down, but we're like a Swiss army knife. Well, yeah, as I say, like generalists, that's the thing, yeah. Exactly. We can j- just about just about manage everything. And I think that's a huge strength. So, yeah. and one of the the good things about, probably the best thing about my university degree was how they didn't focus solely on the theoretical stuff and the and the maths, although there was a hell of a lot of that. They yeah. they taught us courses like project management, planning, um, even some law modules. They, they, they tried to broaden it out to practical applications. Mm. And particularly, we did two or three project management modules, yeah. which meant that even though we were engineers, we knew how to project manage. Yeah. You see the French engineering degrees, nothing like that. Yeah. It's, when were you uni again? You were like late 90s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I was starting 99, I think it was. And yeah, so it was all time. But again, my, my uni, I was doing biology, but at my place they actually had a thing there where they made all the science and engineering graduates do two arts modules in your second year just to try and round you out a bit that's probably not a bad idea it'd be even more fun if they made the arts graduates do calculus yeah they didn't do that for some strange reason why and they said because no one cares if arts graduates can do science well yeah exactly they don't care they don't care if arts graduates can do art either by the looks of things but it's um no it's it's I think that's a good idea because one thing, in in fact, one of the most interesting things I've found in my professional life, the more managers talk about soft skills, the fewer they have themselves. Um, All the French kept on going on about soft skills and empathy. And they they had the soft skills and empathy of uh, concentration camp guards. Um, Whereas companies which don't bang on about it as much, well, they don't need to because the people, they've already employed the right people. Yeah. But I did find that, um, yeah, the and the Koreans, for example, were good engineers. I mean, they were certainly bright. They knew how to design stuff. But the overall management, managing multidisciplined teams in four locations with 17 nationalities, God, they were bad at it. Mm. And And it wasn't just a question of language. It was the fact that they they didn't have any experience in how other people thought outside their cultures. Yeah. Whereas the Japanese seem to have managed that. That's the thing, because Choda, I don't know, I'm trying to think now how they did it. Yeah, the Japanese didn't do a bad job, actually. They seem to manage it. But then again, you, they, were, they were a bit more competent. The Koreans do make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. I think also the Japanese have got a longer history of engaging with the wider world. I mean, you think... There was a big lot of stuff going on this last year because it was the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration and the whole opening up to the world, whereas you know, Korea was still known as the, the Hermit Kingdom up until the 1900s, and then they became Japanese territory. So they never really had to engage with the world in the same way. That is very true, actually. That is very true. I've, I'm listening to the uh, Dan Carlin History Podcast, and, oh, yeah. and he was saying that in the... The big sort of um, renovation and opening up of Japan in the late 19th century, they mm. went around the world and said, right, well, who's got the best of this and the best of that? So yeah. they, their navy was good and they, yeah. their navy was able to beat the Russians in 1910 or whenever it was because they, tra- they were all British trained. And British ships as well they built. Yeah, so they, they, got the, they got the land army from the Germans 
Yeah, they, and lots of other bad things from Germans as well. Yeah. In fact, funnily enough, the uh, Asahi beer, yeah, was um that was built by a German. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, the whiskey was all set up by the Scots as well. That's right. So they went around the world saying, right, who's the best at this, 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 and this, and they just bought the expertise in, which of course the Koreans never did. And, and also, yeah. to be fair to the Koreans, when the Korean War happened, yeah. that was a feudal. Um, agricultural society. Yeah, it was backward beyond belief. The yeah. when their soldiers turned up, they couldn't work out what the smell was, and they were. It was because they put human shit all over the paddy fields. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It, it was. It was absolutely. It was honking. I mean, it really was proper medieval stuff. Yeah. And they've come from. Well, the war ended in '53. From there to where they are now. Yeah. And actually, I'm. I'm very close to somebody who spent a long time in Korea. She lived there. She learnt the language. She was teaching English there as well. She went to university there. And she told me the thing you need to understand about Koreans is their grandparents were peasants. I mean, proper out and out living on a farm in a wooden hut peasants. There's no record of massive cities and this kind of urban living. Yeah. And and she said, so, and she found them similar to Russians, where she's from. And she said, when, when they're stressed or upset or you're in an argument with them, you can see them go primitive very quickly. And she yeah. said, you have to understand that uh, underneath, you're really not too far away from being, you know, you're dealing with a farmer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's probably what explains one of the reasons why the Koreans are so different from the Japanese. Um, yeah, yeah. And the Chinese as well. You know, they've you think about how much that has changed within one lifespan, really, and it's amazing to think how they've gone from, you know, the I think you, you could pretty much go from the Qing Dynasty through Mao up until like Deng within a single life, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um. Well, Deng, yeah, I mean, the changes he brought in is what's, what's made China now. But it's uh, it's funny, my, my Turkish friend who was out there um, in China, she, she learned Mandarin. She was out there for years. And she went out in 1997 as, 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 a, as a Turkish woman in 1997, just decided to go and live in China. I think she was the only Turk in the whole of China, certainly the only Turkish woman. Um, it's quite funny because she went out there to study she was sort of an exchange program with a university. She was doing international relations in, in Ankara. And she okay. went out there initially to do a study on the, uh, basically the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. Oh, yeah. Or Manchuria, whatever you call it. And yeah. Yeah. she applied and got accepted and the visa came through and everything, clockwork, no problem. She went out there, arrived. She got settled into her dorm. She went to the university and they said, what are you here to do? And she said, I'm here to study the Japanese occupation, you know, the rape of Nanking. No, you're not. You're not studying that. That's forbidden. And she's like, you're telling me this now? Yeah. And they're like, well, look, you're welcome to stay. But you're not studying that. So you have to study something else. Anyway, she, she chose something else and studied something else. And she ended up staying for, I think she did eight years there in total. But she said there's enormous divisions as well in, uh, in, in China between the, between the ABCs, which are the American-born Chinese, 
uh, the Hong Kongese and the mainland Chinese. Yeah. And even the American-born Chinese find the mainland Chinese pretty disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, just the way they behave. She said the spitting on the floor and the spitting oh. in the bins was just... Yeah. yeah, that's still a big problem. You don't see that in Japan, no? No, no, not at all, yeah. No. I don't, just, never saw that in Korea either. But she said there's the spitting on the floor and this kind of thing. She said the ABC, the American-born Chinese, hated that. They were like, yeah. they're like peasants. Yeah, the worst thing I ever saw in Beijing was someone holding a baby over a bin and the baby was crapping straight into a bin. <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. To, to be fair, you probably, yeah, I never even saw that even in Lagos. But to be fair, I, I don't think I ever saw a bin in Lagos. Yeah. Yeah. If there wasn't been any use in, but still. Yeah. <laughs> now, well, it's, you know, it's it, they'll make progress, I'm sure. And and that's the thing. I mean, I think if, going back to what we said before about being in a place totally on your own where you don't understand anything, I could yeah. handle that in Japan where, or even Korea where I thought there was something interesting. But I had yeah. friends who were sent to these, the, yeah, these industrial towns in the middle of China. And there literally mm-hmm. wasn't anything interesting worth seeing. Yeah. It's not like you're going to suddenly stumble upon a temple and you get into it and there's this culture. It's an industrial town. It was built for some giant petrochemical plant. Yeah. And unless you're into the culture of the people... I mean, like, I'd been to places like that in Russia. I'd been to towns like Nizhnikamsk and Angarsk, which were built solely to accommodate people working in petrochemical plants. But I didn't mind, because you're with Russians and you're getting drunk and you're in nightclubs yeah. and, you know, you're being silly. But I couldn't handle that in China, I don't think. Yeah. Again, there's just so many of those cities that are pretty much brand new, really. But, you know, I was lucky that I was in Beijing and you've got the history and the culture there and the capital. It's easy enough to get around and so on. Yeah. And places like Shanghai, you know, yeah. they're, they're on the coast. So you've got a lot of history there. You know, the Brits were there and, yeah. you know, there's probably a lot more cosmopolitan. But, um, yeah. Shanghai definitely is. But Sh- Shanghai is also, it's kind of like the finished deal whereas beijing they're still building it if that makes sense yeah 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 well i mean shanghai's very similar to hong kong yeah well my turkish friend just said she she looks at pictures of shanghai now yeah oh she she can't believe it she just cannot believe it compared to 1997 to now well that's even pre channel pretty much isn't it 97 yeah it just happened i think when she went yeah or she'd um 97 Ah, sorry, no, I think think that was late 80s. But she said it was really, it was still pretty closed off. And she, yeah. you know, no, nobody spoke English. And this is the interesting thing. She said she learned Mandarin and she was quite, uh, she got a job in a company that wanted to do business internationally. Mm-hmm. So she was doing this kind of office manager's job for this Chinese businessman. But she said, by the time she left, there was simply no requirement for foreigners to do that because it's much easier to find a Chinese person who speaks English. Yeah. And all this talk, you hear all, oh, yeah, it'd be really useful to learn Chinese. Absolutely useless unless you want to socialise because much, yeah. you're not going to turn up. I mean, she's fluent in Mandarin. Yeah. No one's interested in hiring a Turk fluent in Mandarin in China. No, not anymore. No. You're, if you want someone to deal with... Turkey, you just hire a Chinese guy who speaks English yeah. and you'll be dealing with a Turkish person who speaks English 
And that's how it works. So you see a lot of this advice about learning Chinese and, you know, it, it's probably handy if you bump into a load of Chinese people. Um, uh, but, yeah, the yeah. idea that you're going you're gonna to get a really good job because you can speak the language, is, it's nonsense. It just simply doesn't work like that. And it's, yeah, because uh, yeah, they're, they're learning English at such a rate of knots. Yeah. Well, and it's easier for them to learn English than it is for us to learn Mandarin. That's the other thing, of course. Yeah, exactly. And they've got more of an incentive to do so. Because as, yeah. as my Turkish friend found out, she spent all those years learning Mandarin. Well, how useful do you think that is now? absolutely useless because yeah. she now lives in i'm not sure where she is now but she's in i think she's in holland now but mandarin's yeah. not much use there um, yeah. i mean when i knew her in paris it was it was kind of fun to go into a chinese restaurant and you know she'd have a chat but you're not you're not going to give up six years of your life to learn a language so you can do that yeah so it's um, a lot of the places in china they do hire westerners mainly for the look particularly the schools yes yeah i can believe that yeah. yeah, one of my uh, friends there. He, I say friends, like co internees. He, uh, he told me how he was just there to do demonstration lessons for potential students. Once they signed up, they were given a Chinese teacher. <laughs> I I can imagine the big consultancies are going to start doing that, aren't they? Like the McKinsey's and people, they're going to do that. They're going to show a load of pale faces walk in all in suits. You sign the yeah. contracts, and a load of Chinese turn up. Yeah. It's like, see, we're successful. We can afford to hire white people. Well, exactly. I mean, and and look, there's still loads of opportunities for Westerners in these countries because, you know, Westerners are bringing expertise. If you're, yeah. if you have a certain technical expertise, you can you can work anywhere. But yeah. language alone's not going to do it. Yeah. And well, like I said, there's, there's lots of demand for English teachers, but even in China, they want people who have at least a degree now, and ideally, you know. Uh, the minimum they'll take is the online 120-hour courses, but they still, even then, they want people with some more formal qualifications now in teaching. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, well, they they, they like the credentials, don't they? Yeah. Like credentials yeah. and image, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, all right, well, uh, this is this just gone past the hour and a half, Mark. Um, okay. Is there anything else you want to chat about, or do you want to wrap this up? No, I think that's a good point to stop now there. Okay, well, well thanks a lot for coming on. It's been, it's been very interesting. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck in Thank your you. uh, future career. Do you think you'll stay in teaching now? Do you think you'll go back into biology? Um, I'll probably do it for a couple more years and then I'll maybe try something else, but I don't know what yet really, but I think I'd like to try something else, at least one more career. Because I, I see these some Chinese scientists has created these designer babies in an appallingly unethical manner. Yeah. He's basically injected a whole load of them with some gene strain and just gone, right, okay, we'll figure out what happens when they're 18. So if, if you want to go back to, uh, if you want to go to China and deploy your biology skills, um, maybe mm. give them a call. <laughs> yeah, make, make mutant super babies. Oh, make an interesting podcast for the next time. Chinese X-Men. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot for coming on. So uh, all You're the welcome. best, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you around the blog comments. Take care and have a good new year. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>